think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 58 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 59th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Anson Rainbow. And we have with us a very special guest today, Rachel Curran. Hi, it's Welcome. great to be here. Thanks Thank for joining for us. <laughs> Rachel is formerly of uh, the Prime Minister's Office and yeah. more recently of uh, Carleton University and also more recently of uh, Harper and Associates. Associates. Yes. So quite a quite a busy person. And yes. thank you for taking the time today. <laughs> no, I really appreciate it. Thrilled to be here. Um, so uh, Rachel ha- is a busy person, so we're going to respect her time and get right <laughs> into it. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, two things and sort of reflecting um, pieces she's written for policy options in the last... Uh, couple two years two Two three years i guess the last couple of years yeah so one is about deliverology which we've been promising an episode on for basically (laughs) ever uh and the other is what governments look like in the last year of a quote-unquote mandate yeah Uh, because i know people don't like it when we say mandate so (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry like i said yeah i mean it's interesting that you're talking about both of these things at the same time because they're really two ends of the same spectrum right you've got You know, a new government coming in. We saw this with the Trudeau government. Their whole focus was on this concept of deliverology. We're going to figure out a better way and a faster way and a more efficient way, presumably, of delivering on all of these promises we've made. Uh, And they made a lot of promises in their platform. Um, arguably too many, but, but you know, their focus was let's find out a way to deliver these better. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're reaching the fourth year of their mandate. They're almost done. They've got a year left before the next election. And people are asking, have they delivered on this? And what does this last year look like? And of course, going into an election, one of the things you want to do is show that you have delivered on all of those promises you made during the last election. Um, Part of that is, you know, creating confidence, maintaining confidence in our system of government. Right. But also it's, um, you know, do you want people to take you seriously the next time you show up at the platform, right? In 2019, they're going to presumably issue a new platform. Um, How much credibility do you have if you've only delivered on a small percentage of the one you ran on last time? So that's another reason why in the last year of a mandate, a government will really want to try and tick off as many of the promises uh, that it's made as it can. Mm-hmm. So deliverology is a concept that I suspect very few people um, were familiar with prior to Trudeau taking power in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, where did it come from and why have the liberals gravitated towards it as sort of their preferred managerial style for government? Yeah, I mean, it came from uh, the UK. There's this guy called um, Sir Michael Barber, now Sir Michael Barber, uh, who sort of invented this concept called um, deliverology. And in theory, it sounds great. Um, You know, you set certain targets, you set certain metrics that you're going to measure on the path towards delivery of your your promise, uh, whatever you said you're going to do, and you hold yourself account uh, according to those metrics that you're tracking. Um, so, so it's really all about target setting, setting measures of success, uh, and then sort of checking off, you know, when you've when you've reached those markers. Um, there are a few problems with that in the federal context here in Canada, which we can talk about. Um, but the the liberals early on, um, of course, uh, some of the senior liberal staffers in Mr. Trudeau's office had worked with Mr. Barber uh, in the Ontario provincial context. Uh, and they brought him in to help them out with delivery of um, particular political promises at the provincial level. 
So I suspect those same folks, when they moved to mm-hmm. Mr. Trudeau's office federally, thought, let's apply this federally also. Uh, you know, we've seen some success at the provincial level. The UK has had good success with this approach. Uh, let's try it federally as well. So I think that's the the sort of history of it here in Canada. Yeah, that, that tracks with what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think it was specifically for the McGinty government, it's a lot of education-related stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that raises one yeah, of the initial exactly. challenges of deliverology at the federal level, mm-hmm. um, was in the UK, because of the way their government is structured, healthcare was one of the, lar- uh, one of the key areas to yeah. which it was applied. So yeah. healthcare delivery in Canada is obviously provincially. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are not many areas of direct service delivery that the federal government does beyond yeah. veteran, uh, veteran, Veterans Affairs, rather, and yeah. INAC, or whatever it's now called. DISC. Yeah. Uh, DISC and... CERNA. CERNA. Yeah, mostly DISC um, in the case of services, though. When I was briefly working at Global Affairs Canada, I remember going to a results and delivery sort of introduction. Mm-hmm. And the question that really came up was, like, how does this apply to diplomacy? Yeah. And no one could really answer that question. And that seems to be the core issue with it so far throughout Government of Canada. Um, That if deliverology is about producing tangible results, uh, tangible, measurable results for citizens, Mm -hmm. how does your international diplomacy or your national defense really factor into that? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the problem, right? We have a, a split in jurisdiction between yeah. the federal governments and provincial governments here in Canada. Um, and our constitution assigns responsibility for m- many of the major service delivery areas, including, of course, healthcare and education, to the provincial governments. Now, it's much easier to set targets and metrics and track your success um, uh, along, those, along those targets when you're delivering specific services, you know, you can break that down into how quickly are we doing this? You know, uh, is are, are people, you know, reaching certain targets in a period of time? Um, you know, or what are waiting lists like for healthcare? Are we cutting those down to the level that we wanted to cut them? To? So you can set clear metrics mm-hmm. of success and, and measure whether you're meeting those or not. Uh, and you're absolutely right in the federal context, we don't do that except perhaps with yeah. Veterans Affairs um, uh, or with First Nations communities. Right. Uh, the federal government largely, if it interacts with uh, Canadians at all, with citizens at all, it's through these big benefit programs, uh, EI or OAS or CPP, where it's essentially just cutting checks. Yeah. So the federal government is sending money to individuals. Uh, or it's sending money to the provinces through our big transfer programs. It's not doing a lot of this direct service delivery. So how do you really measure, uh, you know, uh, metrics, the kinds of metrics that deliverology relies on? Um, I don't think it is a very good fit. Um, And and you're absolutely right, the more sort of policy-focused departments uh, where you're doing things like diplomacy or doing things like developing, you know, defense policy for the for the next five or ten years, uh, you know, how do you use deliverology to really me- measure progress on that? It's not yeah. a it's it's not a great fit. I was actually looking through the Department of Indigenous Services um, departmental plan, mm-hmm. um, which identifies targets and how far along they are on them. And the, yeah. what I noticed is that for a lot of it, there's a lot of question marks in the yeah. sense that they haven't actually established a lot of targets yet. Yeah, I think this is probably an artifact of the INAC split. Yeah. Um, and then DISC sort of being spun off to do its own target identification. But it really begs the question of why this wasn't 
done when INAC was one department. Because yeah. uh, it seems like there's a lot of like, oh, we're consulting about what the appropriate target for this is. And it's like, well, yeah. why wasn't that done like first year of the mandate? Yeah. And actually, the Auditor General had two reports this spring about uh, Indigenous services. In particular, it was, uh, well, socioeconomic status on reserve and then also um, job mm-hmm. or employment training programs. Right. And basically, the conclusion they came to, which I think a lot of veteran INAC watchers will, will agree with, is that the department doesn't like to, it likes to cultivate a healthy series of unknown unknowns, uh, where if they don't know about the problem, it isn't really their problem. Um, so if they don't have the data, then yeah. no one can really yell at them about it, which does seem to be yeah. so you <laughs> tradition there. Uh, That's the other problem, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's also an advantage in not setting clear targets because then no one can also hold you accountable for right. them. You. You made the point to me when we were discussing this last time that of the targets they'd set, they were about uh, the number of doctor visits that we had in X community. Yeah, and this is actually critical for what Barbara (coughs) talks about in the book, right? Which was, actually, I don't remember the name of the book. It was really long. Yeah. (laughs) It's how to run a government so that something and citizens don't go crazy, something like that. It's really long. Uh, It was a little indulgent on his part. But what he says is that you really shouldn't measure outputs you should measure outcomes because the outputs like yeah. any idiot can sort of say like we're going to make more widgets right but it's That's like exactly it yeah. are the widgets doing anything but is this the has real been, question this has been a problem at the federal government level for yeah. a long time we do measure outputs and we measure activity and we measure yeah. that as as our our measurement of progress not outcomes yeah so we wrote you know 10 reports this year and so we have met our measure of success yeah. that's again that's you're measuring activity yeah. you're measuring outputs you're not measuring outcomes. so our system actually has not been oriented towards measuring outcomes i would say ever Uh, And so even that transition is going to take a while and is going to be quite difficult. I think it's critical that we do it, um, but I don't think we've ever really thought about it in a serious way before. If you look at the annual reports for a lot of departments, you will see output measurements, not outcome measurements. Yeah. And I I, to sort of defend the honor of the public sector here a little bit, that's not really endemic to the public sector. Like, I mean, there are plenty of, of private companies that you know do okay mm-hmm. on measuring outputs rather than like yeah. really taking a long hard look at outcomes that's why we have like you know value for money audits and that kind of thing yeah um but yeah no it, it is like a, a real thing and it's just surprising that you know i think the outcome centric way of thinking is really integral to what deliverology is sort of promising yes and if you're not doing that it seems like you're really missing the point yeah, I totally agree. Um, that, that that takes a lot more work, though. Figuring out what you're, what the, what outcomes sure. you actually want, uh, and you don't want to set ones that are unrealistic either, right? right? I mean, you could say we're going to reduce wait times for hip surgery to like two weeks. Well, if that's totally outside the realm of possibility, or it's going to take you know an extra, you know, fifty million dollars right. in funding per hospital. Um, that's not a realistic outcome. So even figuring out what outcomes um, make sense in the context of individual programs or individual departments takes a lot of time. So, you know, to your point about, well, why didn't they do this in the first year of their their mandate? I think even that exercise of figuring out (laughs) not just what what they want to measure, but what a realistic um, target actually is and what a realistic outcome is takes a while. Because it's almost, you have to measure where you are before you can sort of set your goals, right? If you you come in and you say our goals are X, but you don't have the data to substantiate X, then you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, You don't know how far you have to grow. So to to pivot slightly, uh, we talked a little bit how they alluded, I guess, that they 
aren't really talking about this anymore in a big way. So Michael Barber addressed their first big cabinet retreat. I don't yeah. think we've seen Heidner hair of him since, no. or maybe once or twice. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, this seems to have kind of gotten quietly buried. Is that like an accurate impression? Do you think they, they realize yeah. the shortcomings of this approach and their... Uh, yeah, I like this is unfortunate. Um, so I think the ambition was good. I think mm-hmm. the intent was good, as always with this government. I think the intent is largely good, um, but when it comes down to execution, um, I think they realized. Firstly, what we talked about it's not a great fit uh, with what the federal government does. Um, secondly, this was going to take a lot of time. The majority, a majority mandate is only four years, right? Like yeah. you've got a very, it sounds like a long time when you're first elected. It's actually a very short amount of time and it, the months pass very, very quickly. They've got 200 plus promises um, uh, that they want to they wanna implement. Uh, you know, getting that done in a period of four years while trying to restructure the entire delivery system at the same time is just going to be right. impossible. And so I think they realized as time went on that they had better just focus on getting stuff done rather than talking about and working on the system to get stuff done, yeah. Yeah. right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, that, 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 that reality of the, of the shortness of a majority mandate has probably hit home as well. I should also say the federal bureaucracy is already, and to, to, like, 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 let's give the public service credit here is already oriented towards delivery. Like, public servants get it, right? A political party is elected on a particular platform. They are already, the Privy Council office is already looking at that platform before the party even, you know, um, is successful in an election and, you know, walks through the door mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the Langevin building, or whatever it's called now, Prime Minister's <laughs> office. Um, they are already breaking down those promises and figuring out which departments are going to be tasked with them, which ministers yeah. will be tasked with them, what they need to do to implement them, uh, and they 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 keep a track uh, a track list of uh, political party promises. So they are already oriented towards delivering on these things. They get that that's a big part of their job. So I, 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 did this system actually need fixing? Uh, look, I think we could have, we should work on measuring outcomes. We should work on maybe setting clear targets. Mm-hmm. But the the mindset around delivery on promises is already very much a part of the system here in Ottawa. This is one of the things you talked about in the policy options piece. You talked about how PCL um, in Canada is reasonably unique among uh, sort of high level government systems, or or their role rather is often to communicate at very high levels to push the ball along in the various departments yeah. that, you know, PCO has different people who are attached to all of the, all of the different departments yeah. and they are the high level person who is watching the progress of be it the legislation or the policy or the regs move through that department yeah. and they have the carrots and the sticks to push that along as, as sort of they see fit. Yeah. Um, what was sort of, this was sort of replicated with the results and delivery units that were put into the departments across uh, government mm-hmm. um, to do effectively that same task. Yeah. So sort of beyond where they were physically located with results and delivery actually being in the building, mm-hmm. um, they seem to be replicating the work largely of PCO. Yeah. Um, 
So it, it was really unclear what their role was and how they differentiated themselves from the work that PCO was already doing. Which is somewhat yeah. ironic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, these re- I guess these results and delivery units are like mini PCOs in every department, right? But the Privy Council office already, it's not like they, they, they use a very big stick, um, but they can certainly, they certainly act um, to convene, you know, various departments to work on complicated policy files if, if there's if something's stuck somewhere uh, and, you know, there needs to be a discussion about how to overcome whatever obstacle is encountered, particularly where different departments are of different views uh, on a preferred option, for instance, or even different ministers are of different views on their preferred option. Um, you know, PCO brings all of those people together and acts as a sort of convening function, I guess, to sort through those problems. And so they are already very much part of, of that delivery process. So that, that actually raises, I mean, that's a fairly technical point. Um, but you talk about the convening. And one of the ways that PCO convenes is what are called four corners meetings, mm-hmm. um, which is PMO, PCO, department, and that department's minister's office. Yeah. And it's to push through any issue that needs to be pushed through, mm-hmm. sort of get a policy back on track or find out the status of it. Yeah. That's the way it's always been done, but with results and delivery, I'd be very curious to know whether or not they're looped into that type of meeting directly or whether they're sort of on the side getting updates, whether they're directly part of that policy process that's been well established within government for years, or if they merely get debriefed on things after the fact. Yeah, that's a really good question. I I don't know the answer to that. I mean, certainly um, when we were in government, the direction would come from the clerk of the right from the clerk of the Privy Council's office. Like, let's hold this four corners, six corners, eight corners meeting to sort through this. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, just <laughs> to sort through this issue and hear everyone's perspectives and figure out what the next steps are so we can get this back on track and get it done. Um, and and all parts of PCO were very much involved in that, or or the the people who were relevant to the file. So I don't know what the results and delivery unit is doing that's any different from that because it was part of already part of the job of every senior official in in the Privy Council office to keep track of their files and the status of those files and you know to talk to the Prime Minister's office or through the clerk to the Prime Minister uh, if there was a problem in any particular area that needed you know, unsticking. So I, again, I'm not sure what the results and delivery unit is doing that's any different um, or what these individual units and departments are doing that's that's really any different from what PCO was doing previously. Yeah. Well, that I guess now we know. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else will have to answer that question. Do you think that this is going to be something that like as they, they sort of roll into a new mandate that they're going to maybe try and, and put a little more emphasis on? Or is this sort of like an experiment that has probably more or less run its course and will be allowed to die a quiet death. Well, I, I look, they put so much political capital into this. I don't know if they can just let it die. I suspect it may transition into something like um, developing, you know, better uh, outcome measurement sure. tools or something like that. Um, something that will be useful in the process and in the system that already exists. So I don't think they'll just cancel it outright. I think it will probably morph um, into, hopefully, uh, a more useful um, version of what it is currently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would expect them to focus on things like uh, like targets and measurements yeah. that are truly meaningful. Yeah. And it, truthfully, if they can make progress on that front, 
um, that would be well worth doing. Yeah. I think part of this is um, there's a sort of, uh, I think in, well, I guess you're in the consulting world now to some degree. But <laughs> I think there's a sort of consulting class uh, fixation on, on the idea of best practices. Yes. I think this deliverology thing was seen as a best practices sort yeah. of, of like yeah. can't lose sort of thing. Yeah. I get the sense that Jerry Butts is the kind of guy who listens to a lot of TED Talks. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I think this would have really appealed to him. So that's kind of where I see this coming from. And then they yeah. realize like, ooh, this actually doesn't really work in this context. No. Oh. And, and as I say, like you can, best practices are great. You can spend all of your time trying to develop a best practice and talking yeah. about best practices and never actually get anything done. Yeah. Uh, and that's a problem when you're a political party and you need to be <laughs> reelected and you're like, uh, you're asking voters to, you know, make an assessment of your performance. Right. You need to have actually done something. I can just see if the liberals win in 2019 with nudge units now created in oh, every, yeah. <laughs> every department yeah, no across government. Nudging. No one talks about nudging anymore. Right, right across the, the hall from the shuttered <laughs> results and delivery offices. <laughs> So I think we'll just pivot from there to uh, the sort of the end of the mandate mm-hmm. um, to to what a government sort of like, what is the last year of like, not just legislative time, but of, of government time sort of spent doing? Yeah. So, I mean, the last year looks very different from the previous years. And that is the, and you know, I, it, the sense is that governments are always focused on short term political issues. That's That's not quite true. Um, when you come in and you've got a series of promises that you want to deliver on, you tend to front end load the ones that eat up political capital or that take a lot of time or that aren't necessarily going to garner you any, you know, political goodwill, but you need to do them anyway. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, if you've got a big deficit and you want to reduce the size of that, you're going to do the exercise to review all of your government programs and try and find efficiencies and cut back where you can. You're going to do that right at the start of your mandate, which is what the Harper government did in 2011. You're definitely not going to do that in your last year because no one's going to thank you for, you know, making cutbacks and and uh, um, reducing the size uh, of offices and programs. Right. So in really in the last year, um, kind of it's referred to as the, the red zone. Um, the focus becomes all politics all the time. Yeah. So you're really focused on measures that are short term in nature. They're very voter oriented. Uh, you're doing announcements all the time, um, trying to get as much political credit as you can. It's a really good time for anyone interacting with the government. It's a good time to go in with those short-term wins. So if you're working for an industry organization or a stakeholder group, um, you know, and you've got like a, a like a quick win, something that can be done through regulatory change or inserted in a budget bill, yeah. um, you know, and it's going to be great news for the government, something they can send out one of their ministers, their, even the prime minister to announce, like this is, a, this is a good time to do it. This is when, you know, government's going to be looking to be in the news with all good stuff. Right. I mean, the, the term good news budget is, is one that's yeah. often used for, yeah, that's the... Yeah. 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 Well, the budget. So the la- the budget in your last year essentially becomes the platform on which you campaign. Right. Um, you know, it was certainly true for the Harper government in 2015. The 2015 budget became, you know, the basis for the platform when the writ was dropped in the summer of 2015. Yeah. Uh, and you will see that with the government too. Its last budget will be very political. Yeah. Uh, and will will interact very closely with the 2019 platform. Yeah, that makes, I mean, yeah. can't really blame them, I guess. And I, and I mean, that is that is one of the perks of being in government is you're able to use the vast resources of the public service to, yeah, to craft it. Yeah. 
as well as all the input you've received from stakeholders yeah. over the past two years. I mean, Absolutely. that is true in the sense, in a sense, I think opposition parties have the freedom to be a, like, I mean, the liberals, and I don't often give them credit on this show. I really don't, as, as many <laughs> as many regular listeners uh, will, will know and sometimes complain about. But I think there is a certain effective or there's a certain really good effect for a democratic system of government when you have a party that comes from outside i mean this is like just the principle of rotating parties of power is like not the worst yeah (laughs) because i mean it really does government is a big 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 machine and when you're inside the big machine you tend to think like the big machine that's just kind Mm -hmm. of what it does when you've been there a while especially Mm -hmm. and sometimes even if a party's promises don't always end up working out it just is good to have thinking that challenges the big machine from time to time. Yeah. And even if it cycles in and they don't manage everything, I still think there is that is a good and creditable thing to try and like sometimes you do need to be ambitious and yeah. oftentimes ambition is what, you know, you get sort of a from public servants that are, you know, thinking, "Oh, that sounds difficult." <laughs> but that's good, you know, like you yeah. do need to challenge uh, the public service, like sort of play a challenge function on a systemic level yeah. rather than at the yeah. policy staffer in a meeting level. Yeah, I agree with that. And if you are the party in opposition, you have a lot more freedom to put stuff in your platform yeah. that, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily add up numbers-wise sure. or maybe isn't as realistic in terms of what's possible on the implementation front. But you have the latitude to do that. And as you say, uh, some of those ideas are actually quite valuable. If you're in the party in power, you're much more captive to the world you're operating in, yeah. which is the world of government. Um, and you know exactly what the budget is and what can fit in there and what can't. Um, you probably have a pretty good idea of what can be done um, in terms of in terms of programs. But sometimes you you don't think creatively or you aren't right. thinking outside of the box because you're so far in the box. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that cuts both ways. I think the Canadian system, particularly for opposition parties, is keeps them further outside of the box than many other jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Um, to use uh, an area that I'm more familiar with, let's say on security and defense issues, in the United States, you have a lot more looping in of, frankly, everyone. Yeah, well, that's because um, there's not really like a government. in the the parliamentary sense yes yeah but but you have but also when (laughs) even when the democrats are in power the republicans get looped into security issues and and back and forth but in canada there's really a firewall like a a very very bright line drawn in the sand between opposition and government so it's i i think a lot of parties experience or a lot of uh yeah parties when they're first elected experience some sort of shock when they're being briefed up by the civil servants for the first time to say, you know that promise you made about this? That's not (laughs) going to fly, and here are the ten reasons why. And so this is why um, a lot of parties start jettisoning or jettisoning or (laughs) modifying... I was getting there. (laughs) Jettisoning or modifying their platform as soon as they get in. And you start to see that on the first round of mandate letters, that suddenly (laughs) everything's been tweaked a little bit from what it initially was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, and you get that advice um, very quickly from the public service. Again, you know, to the point, they're already looking at platforms, already breaking down those promises while the campaigns are underway. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll give... Parties, uh, if they're elected to government, a very good sense of what can and can be done and what timelines are possible um, and how best to accomplish 
you know, what they're what they're aiming to do. One of the things that struck me working in government uh, towards the tail end of, 20, well, 2015, towards that election, was the opportunity cost. I mean, I mean, this is just, democracy is, is messy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the number of months where government was effectively in stasis. Yeah. Um, the easiest example of this, of course, when the caretaker convention comes in, when the writ is dropped, mm-hmm. but even in the months prior to that, just how totally government pivots towards the election. Yeah. Um, be it staff are pulled into the policy yeah. development process or the uh, platform development process, or they go start working on campaigns and offices are suddenly vacant, yeah. Yeah. or there is no long-term planning anymore. So everything that doesn't have yeah. a timeline of greater than a month yeah. gets absolutely put on hold. Yeah. That's very true. So even starting now, you know, a year out, um, staff will be, the political staff will be sort of double tracking uh, political work in preparation for the campaign Mm -hmm. and the regular work of governing. Um, That happens all the time during a minority government. So the last year of a mandate actually looks a lot like a minority government in that respect. Staff are spending at least a portion of their time on political work in preparation for the campaign. Uh, And that's everything from making a list of your accomplishments to trying to deal with problematic files and wrap those up so they don't become an issue during the campaign. Um, You know, it's starting to prepare materials for your MPs on the ground. Um, so it's so starting to script as you get close to campaign, starting to script for the campaign itself. So all of that work is happening uh, in parallel to the regular work of governing. Uh, and you're right, that takes an enormous amount of time and resources. And the corresponding amount of time and resources that are devoted towards, um, um, you know, just your, your day-to-day files is much less. That makes, I mean, yeah, that. Were you around, actually, when the, um, the conservatives were in a minority? Yes. So how was, was that? I yeah. mean, in, because I, I really you are, like, staring down the barrel of the election all the time. All the time. Like, so you don't know when it's coming. Yeah, so you're always preparing for the writ to drop, always preparing for the government to be in a campaign the next day. And mm-hmm. so that work is done on a continual basis. So, again, the, the every day of a minority government looks like the last year of a mandate for a majority government. Right. You're always doing that sort of double-tracking exercise. You're always preparing to have to go into an election. You're always managing issues as though you were going to have to be dealing with them in a campaign the next day. Yeah. So there's always that very political focus, much less long-term planning, of mm-hmm. course, uh, because you don't know if you have the runway to, uh, to actually implement anything on a long-term basis. Um, and then managing the parliamentary context just takes much more of your time yeah, in a minority yeah. government. Much higher risk. I mean, you are, you know, for every bill you're moving through the House, you are having to negotiate with opposition members to, to get it through. So much less efficient on the legislative side. Also, much more time devoted to that. So right. it's, it's quite different. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you find in terms of like the, the day-to-day um, in, in that policy role? Um, did was different for you from the minority to the majority? Yeah, I mean, again, when you have a majority mandate and you've got four years, and this would be true for the Trudeau government as well, you're able to sort of sit down and think, okay, I've got four years to do this. What do I want to do first? Um, What's going to use to a political capital? Let's schedule that first. Let's figure out what our cabinet agenda looks like 
you know, broadly over four years? Um, what can we back end load? Uh, how many of our promises do we want to get done? And how do we make that happen? So you've got this four year planning period, right? And you've mm-hmm. got the, the luxury, right? <laughs> four whole years in which to, to, to sort of plan your agenda. Um, minority government is just entirely different. You literally go day by day and week by week. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, you're working on uh, some initiatives with a slightly longer timeline, but you have to plan n- n- not to get them done. So sure. you can't you can't actually count on getting anything done. Um, so yes, the government runs; it has to run, but the focus is uh, again much more much more short term. Sure. Um, it's a very, it's, it feels very different. It's a very different world. I found it very interesting just in highlighting how short-term government is. A lot of people, when they when they go to vote, will not be in love with the liberals, not be in love with the conservatives, not be in love with the NDP, and sort of want to hedge towards a minority, mm-hmm. thinking, you know, it's it's more consensus-based. Maybe it'll as be the, more middle of yeah, the road. As the Globe and Mail famously endorsed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's interesting, I don't think it's often discussed, that one of the things you're giving up there is the ability for your government to do any long-term planning. Yeah, absolutely. That, that it suddenly has the attention span of a goldfish and everything further out than 10 seconds is completely forgotten. Yeah, I mean, if you I, I look at in systems which operate in this kind of um, context where you always have coalition governments and you never have one party in a majority. Yeah. You try and work out an agreement to govern, you know, as when you as soon as you're elected. So this is what takes so much time to form a coalition government. Right. Of course, they're negotiating what the government is essentially going to be allowed to do over the period of the coalition agreement to govern. Yeah. So the problem with that system is, um, and yes, of course, it can work. The problem with that system is voters don't actually know what they're getting until yeah. after the government's formed. So it's not until those negotiations have concluded with, you know, the parties who you need to form a coalition with that anyone has any idea what the government's agenda is yeah. going to be in more than broad strokes. I mean, so I will say this does also happen in Westminster single member plurality. I mean, yeah, I, to be to be frank, the Doug Ford government did not have much more than a very few broad strokes going in, and I'm pretty sure voters were not sure exactly what they were getting there. <laughs> fair point, fair uh, point, fair w- point. One interesting, uh, it was more of a fun tidbit, I was in Germany this But summer, Doug Ford can do long-term planning now. Sure can. He can, and he's actually got, if he makes, if he needs to make yeah. difficult decisions to get the province's finances back in order, I'm, he has the time and space to do that. I'm sure that you guys are very happy about that. <laughs> Um, no, I, yeah, when I was in Germany this summer and I was talking to someone who had been uh, negotiating the sort of coalition agreement between the SPD and yeah. uh, the CDU. And it's funny because there they call them treaties. Mm-hmm. So it's very much, they have a very formalized way of looking at them. Of course, yeah. And uh, the contrast with like the UK, where they had this agreement with the Liberal Democrats, yeah. uh, Conservatives did, um, where they it was not adhered to yeah. as closely or like the spirit of it was much less... Yeah, formal. I mean, like the I have to hand it to the conservatives mm-hmm. in the UK. They were very good at screwing the, Demo- the liberal Democrats over on just about yeah. every substantial point that yeah. they had agreed on. Yeah, I mean, leave it to the Germans to formalize it and call it a treaty, right? But yes. it, it, if you're going to have any stability in your government, you need to, you that, need yeah. to have that. You need to have that certainty. Yeah. Um, otherwise, when you're literally governing day to day, which is what a minority government is like here. 
um, it really becomes impossible to devote the proper amount of time and energy to dealing with the files that a government should be dealing with. Yeah. So if you're going to be in a minority context on a you know an ongoing basis, you need to figure out a way of doing that. I think. Sure, that makes total sense. And uh, with that, I think that it is just about six thirty. So thank you <laughs> once again very much for your time, Rachel. This is really absolutely. Really Thanks for the invitation. It's fun. Anytime. <laughs> All right, folks, you've had your your kale salad and chicken breast. <laughs> that was the, the, the hearty, nutritious uh, stuff that you come to the podcast for. We are now here to, to shitpost. This this isn't really shitposting. It's pretty... This is pretty... We're going to get... Parliamentary it's, history is not, it's, not exactly... Uh, okay, well, why don't we just the, not try the to The dessert. Go. It's the dessert, yeah. This is the creme brulee, so to speak. So, in discussing, um, well, we haven't done a podcast in a while. I think it's been about two weeks. Um, But in our last discussion, we were talking about um, the conservative response to the movement of... Carolyn McClintic. McClintic to the Healing Lodge. And then the conservatives had a motion... Um, decrying this and naming Terrilyn McClintock and then there was Twitter conversations and many different conversations and Laura and I had a conversation about it. Many in fact. Uh, many of them. Many. Um, and Laura kept referring to it as a bill of attainder. Um, prompting a bit of research on the history of bills of attainder in uh, Canada. Did you know that they're banned in the US Constitution? <laughs> True story. Explicitly. Very and you good. also can't grant letters of mark. And uh, so we, we've learned some things on this. So, so, so Laurent, do you want to start with the historical uh, background on Bills of Attainder? Yeah, so a Bill of Attainder is basically any bill. So they're sort of divided into public and private business, right? Public business being uh, government bills, private business being like PMBs, private members' bills, private members' motions, etc. Um, and there's also a third category, um, which... Uh, is kind of broadly referred to as bills of attainder, or uh, I forgot the other name for it, something and punishments. Uh, a bill of pains and punishments. Pains and punishments, thank you. And that has sort of lapsed out of the British parliamentary tradition because it was sort of seen as a little gauche to use the sort of... Uh, it was bypassing due process, essentially, was the problem. Like, instead of bringing it to a court, whatever the issue was, you were saying, we're just going to have the legislature like rule on it, basically, by... Um, you know, this this is... But, yeah, yeah serve, just, serve as yeah. judge, jury, and executioner, quite literally. Exactly. Well, I mean, I don't think they would actually do the execution themselves. But, it, was, uh, it was actually the speaker who was charged. <laughs> the he, he who passes... Yes, the hand that casts the vote. <laughs> swings the sword. The sword. Uh, sorry. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, this, this uh, sort of as you sort of had liberalizing reforms... Um, as a response to the rise of, of a merchant aristocracy in uh, or the merchant class in, in Britain that felt that their property rights would be threatened by uh, the sort of access to an arbitrary um, uh, legislative process. They were like, hey, we can't do this anymore. So um, they stopped doing bills of attainder. As I said earlier, the U.S. Constitution explicitly forbids them. Canada it hasn't really come up, but uh, speakers have been forced to rule on two occasions in the past about putative bills of attainder yes so let's let's talk about those sure um the first one was in 1984 introduced by uh progressive conservative mp gordon taylor i think he's from medicine hat um and it was entitled an act respecting the execution of clifford robert olson 
Um, so really no hiding what that was about. No, I, that's pretty straightforward. Um, it's worth noting that 1984 was well after Canada had gotten rid of the death penalty, so this was a particularly bold choice by uh, Mr. Taylor. Um, for anyone not familiar, Clifford Robert Olson, sort of one of Canada's worst serial killers. Uh, so, I mean, he was certainly a special case. Yes. Um, but in this case, the chair did rule that the bill was in fact out of order and that basically the, the practice of bills of attainder had fallen out of, uh, use in the British parliamentary system when the Canadian parliamentary system was grafted from it. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't going to fly. And so when you read through the old Hansards, which I only have like photocopies of, (laughs) um, Gordon Taylor's response was, In view of your comments, Speaker, I will not move second reading of this bill, but I will place on the order paper another bill that will meet your objections, I believe. I actually don't have the follow-up, and I I don't know if Mr. Taylor ever did introduce an act respecting the less-than-execution of Clifford Robert Olson, but I, I really struggle... Any punishment that he would put, naming the individual, I think would be hard, well, to, uh, you know hard who, to escape. Do you know who would disagree with you about that, about that being a bill of attainder? Is former Senate Speaker <laughs> Noel Kinsella. Because when uh, Senator Ann Cools introduced S-11, an act concerning Carla Homolka, uh, the Speaker of the Senate um, referred to the 1984 precedent, but said that uh, it was not a bill of attainder because hers didn't concern execution and said that it was, in fact, a bill of... Pains and punishment. Pains and punishment. I was about to forget that. Thank you. But I we looked this up and, like, he's actually wrong. A bill of attainder can encompass... Like, they're this interchangeable terms, basically. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. They have the same Wikipedia entry. <laughs> That's how you know, uh. yeah. <laughs> so the Bill of Attainder does not refer specifically to executions, but, you know. It's, yeah, like some definitions will say yes, some will say no, but... Not, I think not, they say no. Not a, not a good place to uh, base parliamentary procedure on. So that has, this has happened twice, where you have specific named individuals and specific named punishments. Uh, I think, th- and one of them already in the penal system, mind you, Um which I think... Well, I mean, in this case, both of them were already in the penal system. Right, that is... Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Sorry. Um, but, yeah, no, he's not... He's at large, and they're just like, <laughs> death! <laughs> um, but, uh, no, so my point about this whole discussion was that I think that were the conservatives to have introduced their motion as a bill, like, if you took the exact substance of it and put it as a bill, the speaker would rule it out of order as a bill of attainder. Thus, I feel pretty... On firm ground saying that this was essentially a motion of attainder, if you will. I actually could disagree with you there. I'm sure you could. Um, I think, I mean, there's the administrative law challenges that I think are raised by naming a particular individual. Yes, well, that's, yeah. Um, But I don't know if it would be interpreted to be a bill of attainder if it was concerning the level or the the treatment that they got rather than the length of the sentence or something to that effect. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm completely just spitballing here. I'm pretty sure but, since it's it would just be like, once again, you're talking about pains and punishments, right? It's neither public nor private business, really. So I just oh, don't, yeah. I don't see how you square that circle of it getting out of that classification. So, so I don't know. Okay. So I don't know if... It might fall into the trap of something that government cannot um, introduce a bill on because it's neither public nor private business. Um, but by by virtue of being outside of that, that doesn't necessarily make it a bill of attainder or a bill of pains and punishments. Well, I mean, it is Al- literally although, a bill specifying one person that would 
provide some kind of punishment. I'm, right? I'm like, just quibbling with, <laughs> I don't think we have a strict definition of what punishment is in this context. I think moving someone to, I think any lawyer would say that moving someone to a more stringent classification of like penal institution would classify as. Uh, I, think I mean, once again, razor wire, that's, that's the critical factor. If I'm here. not mistaken, the liberals have argued she's still at a medium security facility. So it's about being at a specific facility. Yeah. You can view it as a punishment or not. I, th- I think there's sufficient wiggle room for that to be an open question. At the same time, is that really precedent you want to set? I think the conservative answer is yes, apparently, but, uh, I, I just procedurally, I think it would not be super clear cut. I, I think there would have to be a ruling on what constitutes punishment and whether or not this did, yes. um, would have to be determined. I, I don't think it's black and white. I mean, I think it would sort of strike a speaker looking at it as arbitrary and not respecting the sort of tradition of, of due process. That is why we don't do bills of attainder anymore, even if the punishment that, is nominally no more or so, less. That's not what I'm arguing about anymore, though. I'm, I'm, like, I, I do believe a speaker would likely rule the bill out of order, um, but not necessarily because... Ah. Um, it falls into pains of punishments or attendance. I see. Well, hopefully we never have to find out. Because yes. uh, it'd probably be best if people avoided doing stuff like this. So, two precedents in uh, Canadian parliamentary tradition. Um, neither were successful on specifically bills of attainders or bills of pains and punishment, depending on whether or not your speaker can sell it. Yes. Who is wrong? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, will, that, will that do it for us today? I think that's it. That will do it for us today in that case. Uh, our beer today was... Lodestar. Lodestar. From? One sec. I'm grabbing the bottle. the bottle. Uh, oh, Alora Brewing Company. Where are they from? Alora, Ontario. I don't know where that is. Is that uh, like Muskoka country sort of place? I honestly have no idea. I assume um, everywhere I don't really know where it is is like Muskoka area. But the, I don't the, really know. This, yeah. The part of Ontario I don't know. It doesn't have a map know. on it. Don't, don't look. It's it's on, you know, this side of Ontario. Okay. Um, sour ale with pink guava. Okay. It's pretty good. I think the guava really came through on this one. It did, yeah. And it wasn't too, too sour. It's pretty, I'd recommend. Juicy pink guava aroma woven against subtle vanilla and fresh orchard fruits, smooth across the palate, finishing Ooh. bright and effervescent. I want to get a job writing tasting notes. To be honest, that sounds great. I could, I could get behind that. Yeah. We, we are for hire. Yeah. Um, if you have a beer that you would like uh, professionally reviewed. Yeah. Actually, you know what would be great is a Twitter bot that does like procedural, like Markov chain uh, tasting notes. That'd be horrifying. I'd love it. I can't code. I'm uh, sorry. Neither can I. I never, I never went to one of those workshops as a small child. I, <laughs> well, yeah. now you will be replaced by an AI. So. And I, I cannot bootstrap it myself. So here we are. Sad. Uh, so yeah, that'll do it for us today. Uh, thanks once again for listening. And sorry for the delay. We just had sort of a sickness and then travel. And then it just sort of got away from us. So yeah, It was break week anyway. Nothing important happened. Um, one last thing to keep your eyes forward to. Um, being that it is fall, the fall economic update... Um, should be soon soonish. We don't know. So, soon TM. So something to look forward to. Indeed. Bye everyone. Bye.